This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Very excited to bring in to the flagship podcast interview a legend, Longhorn legend. LHN needs to do one of those Longhorn legend uh, commercials for this guy, Phil Dawson. Unbelievable uh, human being, first and foremost. And I'm so old, I covered him when he was a player at the University of Texas, but now is the new head coach at Hyde Park High School right here in Austin. Phil, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Man, it's an honor to be on with you. Uh, like you mentioned, I've known you for a good while now. We won't say how many years, uh, but uh, it's an honor to be on with you and uh, talk a little shop with you. Yeah, I mean, I think this will be fun for our uh, for our listeners because they certainly know, um, well, if they were around, uh, they certainly know when um, you were at Texas, I mean, you burst on the scene. I was looking through the uh, the record book, and your first attempt was a 50-yarder at Pitt as a freshman, and you made it in a 30-28 victory. Do you remember that? Oh, man, do I ever. Uh, I can remember taking the field going, uh, man, this is awesome, but – I don't know. This is my first time to be in a college football game. Uh, you know, I don't know. This seems like a tall order, but, you know, I for whatever reason, God gave me the mentality that I love the big moment. I mean, even as a kid, you know, playing baseball, if it was 0-2, bottom of the ninth, you know, game online, I just, I just loved it. Some people don't love it. Doesn't mean they're less of a player or whatever. It's just it's one of those things. I don't know if it can necessarily be developed. You're just kind of born with it. And so big kick, first opportunity ever. I kind of liked it as much as I was scared. I also kind of liked it. And when I saw the ball go through, I really liked it. Well, I was, I had a great time talking to your dad, oh, uh, Robert, <laughs> um, when at the press conference announcing you as the head coach at Hyde park and he told me that your mom uh, called the Dallas Cowboys, I guess when you were in seventh or eighth grade yep. and said, Hey, we we're looking for someone to give our son kicking lessons. And you end up um, getting kicking lessons from a legend. Um, I can't even pronounce his Ben Agabajan or Akajanian. Akajanian who, sorry, who uh, was like a legendary special teams coach in the NFL. T take me through that. And what was, what was that like? You know, I had one of those moms that was going to do whatever she had to do to help her kids. 
And uh, I was starting this whole kicking thing. None of us really knew anything. And so she reached out to the Dallas Cowboys and kind of cold. Good place to start. Yeah, good place to start. I mean, seems like when you grow up in Dallas, that seems like the place to start. And Ben was gracious enough to work with me. And before you know it, he, he kind of pulled me off to the side and said, I know you like to play football, but you need to pursue this kicking thing on the side. And because of him, I learned my first kind of foundational lessons of kicking and I built on it. And that opened the doors to go to the University of Texas, which was a dream come true for me. Well, even before that, I mean, you were an offensive lineman at Lake Highlands and you were a proud offensive lineman. I think a proud 167 or 176 pound offensive lineman. And you were like all district, but then you, you uh, tore up your, your left knee, your plant knee, right? Correct. And that's another great story. So here I am with a blown ACL the week before my senior season starts. And, uh, once again, my mom's going to do whatever she has to do to save the day. And so she finds the Olympic team uh, knee doctor in Dallas and gets me in the next day. Don't know how she did it. But, you know, these are the contributions. You know, when you, when you get at the end of a career and you look back, you always thank the, the people that coaches, players, agents, whatever it is. If I hadn't had my mom, none of this would be even started. Judy. Judy. Rock star. And, and I was able to play my senior year of high school on a partially torn ACL. Well, that's what your dad said. I, I, was, I wasn't there for the Lake Highlands playoff game against Nacogdoches when you kicked the 52-yarder to win uh, the game on the last play. But he talked about this hulking knee brace that you were wearing. Um, so you kicked that field goal with a partially torn ACL. I did. And then fast forward, I, I did my redshirt year at UT, played my redshirt freshman year uh, at UT, and then that off season. So I'd been in Austin two years. Uh, I'm trying to make the strength club. No kicker in Texas football history had ever made the strength club. And so I had the bench. I had the incline. I had the squat. All I needed was the power clean. And so the whole team's around, everyone's cheering. I mean, you know the deal and getting me pumped up and I throw that bar up and I get it around my chest and my left knee just went. And so I finished it off after two years in college. So I wound up playing three seasons on a partially torn ACL. And then finished it off, had surgery. And that's why you can go back and look at pictures. My uh, red shirt sophomore year in Austin, I wore a big knee brace again. Wow. So that the field goal that you made against Nacogdoches, though, opened people's eyes to you, like from a scholarship standpoint. But you got offers, but you didn't get one from Texas right away, right? Correct. They didn't offer until I came on my visit. So I had all my other visits lined up. Texas was my first choice, hands down. Uh, I'm a very proud Texan. 
wanted to play somewhere where my parents could see me play. Uh, they were in Dallas. But I didn't really know. I mean, Scott Shreddy was an all-Southwest Conference kicker. He was coming back for his senior season. You know, and back in those days, the whole scholarship thing to kickers was not what it is today. So it didn't make a whole lot of sense that they would give a scholarship a year before they needed to. So I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I went down on my visit and McAvick pulled me in the office. Said, we want to uh, offer you a scholarship to come kick here. And I knew that probably meant uh, I was going to be redshirted. Wasn't going to get a chance to play right away. I knew the schools I was looking at uh, on my other visits were competing for national championships at that time. I knew all that, and I said yes immediately. <laughs> That's how much I wanted to be a Longhorn, and I tried every day that I was there to represent the Burn Orange in a way that uh, signified my love for that university. Well, and you said you wanted to be they they were not a great program at that time. You wanted to be part of building something. Yes. And we did that. Uh, senior year didn't turn out quite how we wanted, but uh, to win three conference championships, including the last Southwest Conference, you know, the only conference I knew as a kid growing up. Uh, and then to win the first Big 12 when uh, Nebraska just kind of viewed us as a stepping stone to the national championship game. Uh, to beat them in the first ever Big 12 game was one of the highlights for sure. And uh, I felt like we left the program better than we found it when we got there. And I had a great recruiting class around me, some, some great players, great guys, and we feel really good about what we did while we were there. That, that Nebraska game, I, I remember distinctly talking to James Brown because I was the one who asked him, and I don't think Makovic believed me, so I had to play the tape for him. But I said, what do you make of being a 21-point underdog? And he said, I don't know. I think we'll beat them by 21. And I was like, uh, what? But that confidence, Phil, you had that kind of confidence as a kicker. Talk about that coming from James Brown and the mindset of the team going into that game. Yeah, James was an unbelievable leader, uh, and he had that uh, contagious personality. And so when when James said something, we believed him. And so here it is. We got our quarterback, you know, saying he's not scared of Nebraska. <clears throat> All right, neither are we. So, so we went up there, and uh, we were we – were, unified we were focused we were driven and we liked the underdog thing you know when you go to the university of texas you don't get to be the underdog very often or at least traditionally so when you are it kind of kind of ticks you off and so we kind of rallied around one another and we went up there and we played our best game and they didn't stand a chance i mean we didn't just squeak by i mean there was no doubt who was better that day yeah, that was that was phenomenal. It was an unbelievable uh, game, um, and you—I mean—you had some interesting memories. Obviously, uh, you also played with the roster imposter, uh, <laughs> Ron McKelvey, Ron Weaver, whatever his name was. That was crazy. And y'all are at the y'all are at the Sugar Bowl, getting ready to play Virginia Tech. When you find out 
you got a 30 year old on your team who's assumed someone else's identity that doesn't happen every day no not that really it was so unfortunate that that all happened that week because obviously huge game big moment for us getting to play in the sugar bowl and i remember we had a team meeting night before the game and coach magovic came in and kind of told us the deal and i mean you might as well said we had a third eyeball i mean this was coming out of left field none, none of us saw this coming uh and then the the really scary part was coach magic said we've asked ron or whatever his name is to uh go to his room and we're going to go talk to him when this meeting's over so the meeting's over and coaches go up there and he's gone i mean he, he was out so obviously instead of laying in bed thinking about the Hokies. <clears throat> Everyone, you know, hey, what do you think about this? What did Ron say to you? Do you ever do anything you shouldn't have around Ron? You know, all this stuff is going on. And then we go out and we did not uh, play very well the next day. So that that was really unfortunate. But what a crazy experience. Crazy. Um, I mentioned your 50-yarder against Pitt uh, in 94. You also had, you know, probably the kick you're most famous for, the 50-yarder against Virginia, first time ever in uh, Texas Longhorns history that they win a game on the last play of the game. And and you mentioned to me it had even more significance to you because why? It was the University of Texas 700th all-time win. And uh, as someone who loved the university, respected the university, was just honored to wear the helmet it meant a great deal to me that I got a great deal to me that I got to play just a little role in contributing to that victory. And, uh, that, that win and that season kind of was the turning point. And if you go back and look at the rest of that season, we ran the table in conference play and, uh, we were able to hang a conference championship banner in the rafters as a result. So, both that kick represented the history of the university and it catapulted my team that season to bigger and better things. And so when I look back on it, you know, to me, I was one out of three that day. So I'm not real. That's not my most favorite game to look back on because I missed two field goals. But the one I did make uh, made all the difference in the world. And I take a lot of satisfaction in that. Well, um, we'll come back with Phil Dawson. Great stuff. Um, legendary kicker at Texas. He's still got records at UT and all kinds of records uh, in the NFL. We'll come back with Phil Dawson here on the flagship podcast interview. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Phil, you finish up your time at Texas. You're the, you know, you have the most field goals made in a career uh, with 59 and second most 50 yarders with nine. Um, 
And as I mentioned, the longest first attempt a 50 yarder uh, as a retro freshman against Pitt. But you you leave Texas and you're in you're eligible for the 98 NFL draft. You do not get selected. And you had a couple of uh, tryouts with the Raiders, with the Patriots, um, and those don't work out. And you you end up signing with Cleveland in 1999. Take us through your post-college NFL draft experience. Yeah, that was a really painful chapter in my career. Uh, I fully expected to be drafted. Uh, the feedback I had gotten from NFL people indicated so. Had my big draft day party. We rented out a barbecue place back in Lake Highlands where I'm from and had everybody there and the phone never rang. So that was a big curveball. Uh, signed a free agent deal with the Oakland Raiders. Got cut in training camp. Got picked up on waivers by the Patriots and uh, wound up spending the entire 98 season on the practice squad. And so I'm still waiting for my moment, my, my welcome to the league. Uh, I don't know a much lower position to begin than practice squad kicker. And uh, it was a rough year, but a, a learning year. I'd never been in the cold. And little did I know that I would spend the majority of my career after that in a freezing place like Cleveland. So I <clears throat> signed with the Browns the next season. The Browns were coming back to Cleveland as an expansion team and uh, had to beat out three other guys. And so it's final cut day, and here comes my moment that I've been waiting on. And head coach comes up to me and goes, Dawson, we're going to start out with you. And that wasn't exactly the moment I'd been dreaming about or waiting on. Uh, I, I felt like I was one bad game away from it being taken away from me. And I, and I don't know, after 21 years, if I ever lost that attitude. It was literally the next kick. Doesn't matter what I've done in the past. Doesn't matter how long I've done it. Doesn't matter how successful I've been. I am one bad game away from this whole thing being over. And that's literally how I approached my career for 21 years. I mean, 21 years. And you played. It was funny because we were talking at your uh, press conference um, when you were named the head coach at Hyde Park that you finished your NFL career at the age of 43. I mean, you're the Tom Brady of kickers. Yeah, there are a few old man jokes in the locker room. I can assure you of that. <laughs> well, and Cleveland, you mentioned it. I mean, you got Lake Erie right there. You got Canada over here. And the wind and the weather, it's one of the hardest places to kick in the NFL. And you spent an entire career there. Um, and you, you know, the team wasn't always successful, but you, you were the mainstay. Talk about that. Yeah, I had no choice. I mean, when there's only 30 jobs in the world, you can't be super picky. And so I got an opportunity to be in Cleveland. And so it was either figure it out or get cut. And so figuring out sounded better to me. 
than getting cut. And so, you know, this is where my background in football really paid off. I, you know, just because I was a kicker, uh, I chose that I was going to approach the game the same way a linebacker or a quarterback or a DB would. And so I dove into studying conditions. You know, I didn't necessarily have a guy across the line of scrimmage from me that I needed to prepare for, but there was weather, there was wind, there was uh, the currents, there was the, the, uh, the footing on the field, you know, what kind of plant shoe am I going to wear? And so I just started really diving into that and preparing for my opponent on game day. And that was the weather condition. And I wound up creating a whole notebook of every stadium in the NFL, what certain winds mean, you know, just because it's a South wind doesn't mean it's blowing South on the field. So what does this flag mean? If it's pointing right, what is the wind doing on the field? How does the, which way do you maximize kickoffs? I mean, I, I, I probably should sell the dang thing because it's pretty and in, pretty invaluable, but that was how I chose to attack the challenges of kicking in Cleveland and Lake Erie. And uh, that's what allowed me to survive for so long. Well, 11 years into your time in Cleveland, Colt McCoy comes up to be the quarterback. And it just seemed like he was, he, he got pulled into a really tough situation. Eric Mangini was the coach. I just remember that that relationship was tough. What, what do you remember about Colt's time there in Cleveland? I love getting to spend time with him. Obviously respected the heck out of him from his time at UT. And uh, yeah, you're right. Stepping into Cleveland at that point in time was a, t was a tall order. And, you know, Colts obviously proven he's an NFL quarterback and he's still doing it. The unfortunate thing for Colt is when you miss your window, you know, starting out, it kind of, sets you down a different path in the league. And so he's he's had to be kind of a backup type role player for most of his career. And I, I honestly believe that if that window had been a better opportunity when he got his chance to be a starting quarterback, he would have remained a starting quarterback in the National Football League. So I hate that for him, but uh, classic Colt, no pouting, uh, no, you know, sour milk or anything like that he's made the best of it heck of a career great teammate and i love it when he gets a chance to start a game and he goes and wins you know and, and the other aspect of colt that the people didn't know is he was still injured from that hit he took in the rose bowl and was having problems with grip strength and kind of nerve pain down his arm and that's why he couldn't throw the way he knew he could and I saw him a couple years ago in the offseason. He's throwing darts. And I was like, man, what's happened? He goes, Phil, I'm finally healthy. So that was the other part. You know, so the health, stepping into a bad opportunity when your window is open, you know, those are tough things to overcome. But but Colt's great guy, has had a great career, and he's going to be just fine. Well, and then you you go to San Francisco. And you spend four seasons there. You're you're there with Jim Harbaugh. Um, what was it like playing for Jim Harbaugh? Most competitive guy I've ever been around. Uh, you name it. We could be drinking milk in the cafeteria, and he'd be like, one, two, three, go. I mean, everything was a competition. 
and uh, he was relentless. And I absolutely loved playing for him. Uh, some of that was just his personality. I love the all-in, let's-go uh, personality. But first time in my career, I had a chance to win football games. And that first year in San Francisco, we went to the NFC Championship game, and we were one deflected pass from Richard Sherman away, you know, going to the Super Bowl. So that was a thrill for me, having spent so many years going home at playoff time, you know, to be playing meaningful games in January and have a chance to make kicks that help our team advance. And then obviously you're one game away from the biggest football game in the world. That was uh, really rewarding given, you know, the 14 years I'd spent in Cleveland where success was hard to come by. Yeah. And, and, um, so your your next two years in San Francisco, uh, Colt McCoy's back with you, right? Yep. It's great to reconnect with him. I mean, same guy. I mean, Colt's Colt's just one of the best, and he stepped right in. Was a great teammate. Uh, that was a pretty rough uh, period of time in there. The Forty ers were going through a lot of stuff, both on and off the field, and. Colt was just once again that guy you look to for guidance and stability and professionalism and uh, just made me all the more proud that uh, he represented the same university I did. Well, you finish your NFL career in Arizona and and you wanted to get into coaching and you you get connected with Trent Dilfer. Take us through your segue into coaching. Yeah, when you play till you're 43 and don't retire till you're 44, you're a little behind in terms of the career path in coaching. Uh, most guys by then, you know, have 10, 15 years under their belt. And so I was looking for an opportunity to kind of fast track my career, uh, understanding that I'm not a spring chicken anymore. I also wanted the opportunity to coach uh, my son, Bo. And so we started looking around. That's kind of a hard combo to find, right? Like, where can I step right into a coordinator role and coach my son? And given my relationship with Trent and the opportunity he had in, at Lipscomb Academy in Nashville, it just came together. So we, we made the move two years ago. Uh, became special teams coordinator and we lost in the state championship game in year one year two i was special teams coordinator now assistant head coach and we got a rematch in the state finals and i got to watch walk off the field my son's last high school game with the state championship trophy over our heads so i don't know how many dads get to do that but that is one of the single greatest football memories of my life Wow. That is fantastic. And, yep. and you and Trent are connected from some time in Cleveland together. We were teammates in 2005 and then kind of stayed in touch. Uh, from there, he actually moved his family to Austin, uh, in right towards the end of my career. So we were able to reconnect a little bit in there. His daughter graduated from Vandegrift where my boys, uh, where my oldest graduated from. 
And uh, we had always kind of talked through if, if we ever got into coaching one day, what would it look like? And so it was just a natural fit at that time. Well, and and so you have this experience uh, and I've heard you say you, you know, the private school football is different in every state. Some states, the publics and the privates do battle and the and the privates are the powerhouses. Um you know, what was that like in, in Nashville? It's definitely that, that way there, you know, the, the public, public schools have a number of quality programs, but the perennial powers and the big dogs are the private schools. And so it was, it was a big learning experience for me, having grown up in Texas, where obviously public schools are king and uh, really helped me understand what is going to be required to build a private school back in Texas, understanding that that's a really tall order. So it became critically important to me that I find a school that was going to resource the athletic department. And I think, you know, that happened here at Hyde Park. There needed to be a community hunger, which there is here. And, you know, I think with all the stuff that's going on in public schools these days, I think there's a bunch of families out there that are kind of ready to pull the ripcord. And so what our job is, is to provide an attractive alternative. Because let's be honest, uh, if your kid's a really good player, there's probably 10, 15 high schools in Texas you really want to get them to. And if you can't, then you start looking around and you don't really think of private schools all that often. But we're going to change that. And uh, we're going to make this, especially for Austin, Texas, there's a lot of good football players in Austin, Texas, that aren't getting much playing time at the schools where they attend. Well, we're going to get this thing rocking and rolling over here where this is an attractive alternative to give families a choice. And uh, it won't be long, given what I learned at Lipscomb and how I saw things come together there, I put them into a practice over here and we're going to be that place that kids want to come be a part of. Well, I don't, I don't doubt you at all because I remember, uh, and I mentioned this to you, you were always uh, one of the players that Texas would bring to media gatherings on Mondays. And it was because you had this, you know, devout faith, this devout conviction uh, this, you know, forward mentality, this confidence in yourself, uh, confidence in your team, and you still have it. I mean, it has not changed one bit, and it's awesome, you know, handling one of the most mental jobs in the NFL for 20-plus years to now see you bringing that uh, as a coach for young people and – you know, I was talking to your dad and he said, um, you know, why not be a talented overachiever? And, yep. and you know, it's the, the thought of an overachiever is that you don't have any talent. So you're just out there hustling. But if you have some talent and you work like you're an overachiever, then the sky's the limit. And he said that you've embraced that, embodied that your whole your whole life. Yeah, there's only one way to go. I mean, it's all out all the time. And 
you know, it's just been my experience that it, to be truly excellent at anything in life, it requires that kind of mindset. You can't pick and choose when you're going to work hard or pick and choose when you're going to be committed. You're either in or you're out. And uh, when you when you introduce the faith aspect to it, you know, God asks us to work with all our heart and, and do it for his glory, not our own. So there you go. I didn't write the book. But, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to follow it. And so I'm going to demand that of our players and everyone associated with our program. And I'm excited to coach kids that will never play college football. There's something in it. There's still something in the experience for them to learn life lessons like working with all your heart and trusting someone else with the outcomes. You just put the work in and trust the process and we'll see what happens. And I feel like today's society has put so much burden on these kids. You know, if, if you're not a, if you're not a four or five star, then don't even play because it's not worth your time. I think, I mean, there's so many valuable lessons that kids can learn just being a high school football player. And so many memories. I mean, when they're old like us, they'll talk about, hey, remember when we beat so-and-so or remember when we did this? I mean, kids are going to miss out on all those memories if they just fail because they're not a four-star. So I'm, we'll have four-stars, we'll have five-stars, but I'm excited to coach the no-star just as much. Well, and I have a feeling the special teams at Hyde Park will be pretty good too. Yeah, we will. <laughs> Okay, I want to I want to play a little. We'll let you go on this little memory game because you played at Texas with some guys who went on to have big time NFL careers. Um, give me a story about Casey Hampton. Man, I remember uh, he. You know, he was with the Steelers all those years, so I'd see him twice a year, being in the same division. And I used to give Casey a hard time that his helmet looked too small on his head because it looked like his face was popping through his face mask. And then Casey would remind me that he could thump me across the, the field with one flick of the wrist. And so uh, I quickly quit uh, giving him a hard time about how big his head looked in his helmet. I mean, best football player I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, what, what, what can you say? I, I, it's just, I still remember his first play as a Longhorn or first game. I don't know if it was his first play, but we had heard about this Ricky guy and but coming out of California, supposed to be all this and that, you know, we're kind of like, I don't know, we'll see. And he's not even playing tailback. He's playing fullback. So I'm kind of no offense to fullbacks. So I was like, man, if he was really that good, he wouldn't be a fullback. And he takes the first carry like 80 yards for a touchdown. I was like, oh, okay. And the rest is history. <laughs> uh, Dan Neal. Dan Neal was the most flexible O-lineman I've ever seen in my life. I mean, like physically flexible. Go back, turn on the tape, and look how low he could get in a stance. And look how he kept that leverage throughout the play. I mean, Dan wasn't the biggest O-lineman. But because of his leverage and because of his flexibility, he was one of the best to ever do it. And that's why he fit into that wide zone scheme with the Denver Broncos for so long. He, he could move. And so 
I used to kind of joke with him just, man, he, he'd get down his three-point stance and his rear end would go up and down a few times. He was just getting all nice and low. So uh, you need all your your uh, people, your viewers to go back and watch an old game and watch that about Dan Neal. Well, and you, you know about that because you were a former all-district offensive lineman. Dang right. Low man wins. That, that was the only thing I had going for me. What um... – Sean Rogers. I got to play with Sean a little bit in Cleveland. Man, if if you're going to throw a holiday party and you need a jolly Santa Claus, it's him. He's the most flamboyant, just fun guy to be around. I mean, just great teammate, always smiling, good mood, until a game broke out and then he'd tear your head off. Priest Holmes. The quiet assassin. Priest didn't talk much. When he did, you listened because, you know, that it usually works that way. But uh, kind of soft-spoken, quiet. Uh, if you met him off the field, you might not even know he played football. But when you hand him, hand him that rock, you definitely knew he played football. Just incredible guy. You know, I would have loved to have seen him without all the injuries through the years. But uh, he got that run in Kansas City where he let the whole world know that he's a world-class running back. Uh, Bryant Westbrook. He was a dog, man. He brought that West Coast mentality in. Stepped right in as a true freshman. He just owned his side of the field. He, he was he would pop you too. I mean, he he had the whole package. That's why he was a first round draft pick. But he could he could take your best receiver and you know eliminate him from the game. But then he could also come up and run support, and he'd let you know about it. So he he was one of the best ones I've seen. Well, and Phil, I think it's pretty cool that um, there are two Longhorns who have made history as kickers, you and Justin Tucker. Um, and just your thoughts on on Tucker's career. You know, studying kickers throughout the history of the league, you see these points in time where there's a guy that comes and changes the expectations of what is good, what is not good. For example, when I started in the league, if you made 75% of your kicks, you were considered very accurate. And guys like the Andersons, you know, Morton and Gary, Al Del Greco, Steve Christie, some of those longtime kickers, you go back and look, they were all right around that 75% threshold. Then you get a new wave coming in, and that was kind of my generation. And before you know it, 80%. And by the end of my career, it was 83%. So that was a little bump there. And then the next generation comes, and that's being led by Justin Tucker. And there's been a big bump because now it's 90%. And so in 25 years, we've gone from making three out of four kicks to nine out of 10. And now if you make 82% of your kicks, you might lose your job. And he's, he's, he deserves all the credit for raising the bar once again. Well, I'm everyone's excited to see you raise the bar at Hyde Park. 
um, full disclosure, my son graduated from there. So I'm, I'll be, I'll be watching very closely and I know the folks over there and I know how excited they are, uh, that you're now leading the football program at Hyde Park. They couldn't have find, couldn't have found a more, um, a real person who's going to walk the talk and, and mean what he says and says what he means. So Phil, all the best to you, your family, and we will we'll be in touch. We're gonna watch. And I can't wait. Grow. Here's here's what we need to happen. We need the Panthers to win on Friday night, and we need our dang Longhorns to win on Saturday. And you and I can have a really great weekend. That is a number one. Everybody will love that. Phil, uh, congratulations again. Welcome home, and uh, we'll definitely be in touch. Thanks, man. It's an honor to be on your show. All right, there he is, Phil Dawson, everybody. For Phil Dawson, I am Chip Brown. We'll see you over at horns247.com. And until next time, stay safe and keep the faith. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation.